And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. When Bud Selig was 13, the future commissioner of baseball took a train from Milwaukee to Chicago to see the Cubs play the Brooklyn Dodgers in Jackie Robinson's first appearance at Wrigley Field. Now, as Major League Baseball makes history once again with its decision to move the All-Star game from Georgia in protest of its new voting laws, I sat down with Selig to talk about baseball, the game, and the social institution. Here is that conversation. But Selig, it's it's good to see you. Are you the longest-serving commissioner? I know you and Kennesaw Mountain Landis. Just uh, about the same. Everybody wanted me, David, to stay another two months, I think it was, so that I eclipsed Landis. Who was the commissioner in the early 20th century. So 23 years. He took over uh, in 1921 when the owners were in desperate shape because of the Black Sox scandal. And he got them to... Um, give him a lot of power, which was surprising. And um, he used it well for a while. And then that's a whole other story. But I'm just trying to establish your bona fides as uh, the gray eminence of baseball. 22 and a half years and uh, within a month or two of Landis. Nobody else. And, and one of the things that you uh, often said was baseball was not just a game. It was a social institution. We're well into that argument now. Because of the decision of baseball to move its all-star game in reaction to the voting laws that were passed in Georgia that people, uh, many view as voter suppression, they would say otherwise. But it does draw baseball into politics. Does that hurt the game? Or is it important to stand up for the larger principle, even if it does? Right. I don't, I don't believe that it hurts the game. And, and I do. I used to say to Rob Manfred, who served under me for 23, 24 years or longer. And succeeded you, yes. Yes, there are times in life where you have to do what you think is right. And somebody's going to be mad, and you got to get over that because you cannot do it because, well, this guy will be mad or that guy will be mad. And so in, in this particular case, look, Rob Manford did what he thought was right. And uh, do I think the game will get hurt by it? I No, I don't. I have often said... And I believe it, as you know, I'm now a professor and, and a history professor, and I, I talk about social institution all the time. Baseball is a social institution. Go back uh, to 1945 when Branch Rickey signed Jackie Robinson. After, David, the clubs had just voted 15 to 1 not to allow Negroes, quote and unquote, to play in baseball. And um, Rickey was the one. And then, of course, April 15, 1947 in Evansville, Brooklyn. And I've often said it's the most powerful and important moment in baseball history. And I believe that. You, uh, as a 13-year-old, you and my, my friend and your lifelong friend, Herb Cole, traveled down to Wrigley Field. May of 1947. That is exactly right. And, and why did you go down? Well, we were both great baseball fans. Are to this day, even though Herb's a basketball guy, he really is a baseball fan in every sense of the word. But we should we should note also a four-term United States senator from Wisconsin, owner of the Milwaukee Bucks, former former owner, my college roommate, and we've gone to school together since we were seven years old. And, and you went down to uh, and you went down to Chicago to see Jackie Robinson. Well, that's right. It was Jackie Robinson's first game. Uh, we got a couple of tickets. And we went, we were in the upper deck. And you know, David, the thing I'll always remember, I looked around, I'm 13 years old, and we were the only white people in the upper deck. And the excitement was just wonderful. Outside of Wrigley, there must have been, I don't know, 15, 20,000 people who couldn't get in. And it's, it's a day I'll never forget. It, it, it made an indelible mark on me. And I, if I could just say one more thing to you about Robinson, because you talked yeah. about it's three and a half years before Harry Truman desegregated the United States Army, seven years before Brown versus Board of Education, and 18 years before the Civil Rights Movement. But I don't think even we understood what a great moment that was. I, I believe as a 
historian, I believe that Jackie Robinson and Branch Rickey are two of the most important people in America in the 20th century. Yeah, you may well be right about that. Yeah, I think it's hard for us sitting here today to who didn't live through that period to um, remember, but through the testimony of people like you and history, what that meant to the country. No question. Just think about that. It was 18 years before the Civil Rights Martin Luther King Jr. talked about that later on. I mean, the Jackie Robinson story was an amazing story. Well, and I, you know, I had some appreciation having worked for the first African-American president. Right. What the unique pressures were on him and a Jackie Robinson, because you were carrying the hopes and aspirations of so many people. And so you had to do everything just right. You had to, you know, there was no margin for error, an incredible amount of pressure. Yeah, and Jackie said that too. You know, uh, Bud, uh, back when I was a a kid, uh, 10 years old, 11 years old, I had two great passions. Uh, One was normal, which was baseball. The other was politics, which was not necessarily normal for an 11-year-old. But I went up to volunteer for Nelson Rockefeller, for all the Republicans who were listening, uh, who was, as you remember, a a moderate Republican governor in New York. And uh, and, um, a friend of, uh, of mine and I showed up at the front desk and we say, you know, we'd like to volunteer. And they didn't know what to do with 11-year-olds. And they said, well, you know, we, let us think about what we can do with you. But would you like to meet Jackie Robinson? And we're like, of course. And he was working for Rockefeller right. at that time. And uh, he spent, he must have spent 15, 20 minutes with us. And it was, you know, I wish I could go back and be my 11-year-old self and realize exactly, you know, realize how much I was in the presence of 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 greatness. Um, but he couldn't have been more cordial. It's one of the beefs I have with my late mother who threw out my autograph collection uh, when I went to college, including Jackie Robinson's signature, which I would have... Uh, which I would have treasured. You know, you were a close friend of Hank Aaron, Henry Aaron, who uh, who passed away uh, last year. Right. He was going to be, and you know, the great slugger. You had him in Milwaukee with the Braves for thirteen years, and I all had him the years of his career with the Brewers. By the way, oh, that's right, that's right. You brought him back. I brought him. You back. brought him back. I did. Uh, he was supposed to be honored at this All Star Game in Atlanta, where he played many years uh, with the Braves after they left Milwaukee. What would he have said, based on your friendship and your knowledge of him, what would he have said? Because, you know, there are politicians, even Democrat politicians in Georgia saying, you know, you're going to cost people jobs and uh, this isn't necessarily a great thing. What would Henry Aaron have said? Obviously, I don't know. You're you're right. He and I were really close friends for 62 years. I missed the calls. There were at least, he called two, three times a week. And I and, and I knew Henry really, really well. I could spend the rest of the time on that. He was very socially active. So was his wife, Billy, and uh, cared a great deal about life. And, and he had, if you'll remember, if I could digress here. Sure. When I got him back, he came up early in January of 1975. And uh, his assistant called, and she said, we were having dinner at 7 o'clock. She says, can you come down to the hotel at 6? I said, well, I'm going to have dinner at 7. Well, what did he want to show me? All the letters, a lot of the letters, he had, the hate mail he had got. So there's just the two of us in the room, two old friends. Now he's playing for my team. And the mail, David, was as disgusting as you can imagine. And uh, and he cried. I don't. Hank wouldn't mind me telling you. It was, it was really uh, so. Henry, um, as many have said at the funeral where I was to eulogize him, uh, he had a great social conscience. And I can't tell you what he would have said. I nor would I because I don't know. I can only mm-hmm. guess. But, but I will tell you. He was a he was, he felt a very deep obligation to to be socially active in this whole area. Yeah, what a what a horrific story. 
uh, I mean, this was a guy who was um, an exemplary athlete uh, and um, just gave so much joy to so many fans for so long uh, and to be vilified because he was going to over overtake Babe Ruth. Yeah, for breaking Babe Ruth's record. I mean, it was just, it, was, it really was horrible. The love and affection I had for him. Um, and I could tell you a lot of stories. When his home in Mobile, where he was raised with five kids, parents, I think the home maybe was 400 square feet. Maybe. Maybe not even that. And I went down because they, they made it a national symbol and so on and so forth. And I remember thinking to myself, oh, my goodness. Look what he became and look what he raised. Now, look, I'm partial. I think he was the greatest player of our generation. I know there are a lot of Willie Mays fans, and I understand that. And then yeah, Willie, I'm one of them, but I, I respect Hank Aaron a lot. Yeah, but, but Henry was an unbelievably great right fielder with a great arm, great base runner. I'll tell you what, what Henry was. Quiet, thoughtful, not a guy who... And then, then I think for a long time that that hurt him in terms of, of publicity. It's only in the last 20 or 25 years that the Henry Allen story really, and look, Willie Mays is a phenomenal player, but you know, I'm partial. I said to you. Yeah, you should be partial, but just generally, um, you know, we, what, we see these deep divisions in our society. What you hear a lot uh, from particularly Trump world, Trump voters is leave politics out of sports, leave politics out of entertainment, leave politics, you know, out of the things that we are supposed to share. I mean, I, and, you know, we've had this debate for since Robinson, we saw it at the 68 Olympics when there was a protest there. It's this been an ongoing debate and you're strongly on the side that baseball as an institution and sports as an institution has obligations here. I am. There's no question about it. Yes, I am. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now, back to the show. Your parents were both immigrants, uh, right? Right. Uh, your dad came from Romania, your mother from Russia. Right. My father came from Romania and my mother from Russia. I asked this question because my dad was an immigrant from Eastern Europe as well. Mm-hmm. And I think he learned how to play baseball before he learned how to speak English. Huh. Uh, and I'm wondering, I know your mom was like a rabid baseball fan. He came here in, when she was four, came a college graduate, which you know in those days, that was really unusual. My dad did not, but my mother did. And in the 30s, as I began to grow up, I was born in 34, she'd be listening to baseball games, Milwaukee Brewer games. They were in the American Association in those days. But she also listened to a lot of Cub games and White Sox games. And I began to, she's the one that made me a fan. There's no question about it. And to her dying day, uh, it, it continued. Uh, she was amazing. And um, a tight, <laughs> funny story about it. Uh, we were having a fraternity thing. This would be 1956, I think. And we had a big luncheon. And I was president of the fraternity. And, of course, Herb Cole and others there. My mother, m- much to my father's chagrin, um, had a uh, transistor radio in her ear. And in the midst of it, she yells out, how do you like that? Adcock just hit a grand slam against the Dodgers. And everybody laughed and applauded. But that was my mother's intensity. And um, so I can say my sort of obsession with baseball and love for baseball came from my mother. From my mother. My dad would take me to Wrigley Field or before the Braves came here or Comiskey Park as a way to spend time together. And he became a fan. He had no choice because of my mother, obviously. But, uh, <laughs> but he did. And, um, and so I saw a lot, of, a lot of games at Wrigley. And every time the Yankees came uh, uh, to Chicago, I was, I was at Comiskey Park. But it's my mother who really, no question, made me a fan. 
so my question is like, why? I mean, you know, I never even had this. I used to go to the ballpark with my dad. We were in, I grew up in New York and we would, whatever team was in town, we'd go every weekend. Uh, and he became an all city baseball player. He played sandlot ball with Hank Greenberg. He got a college scholarship to pitch at LIU. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was, he, and, and I never asked him, how did a kid who got to here when he was 12 or 11 uh, from, you know, Ukraine, Right. By the time he was 17, be uh, become an all-city pitcher. How did he become so – why was he so taken by baseball? And I'm Did you ever have that discussion with your mom? I did, and I never – I mean, she was a teacher. She was a school teacher, and uh, a school teacher to her dying day. But she, um, she just loved the game, just loved the game. I asked her how she became fans. Well, I used to start listening to them, and – then she'd take me to Borchard Field, which was the old American Association Park that the Brewers played in. The minor league Brewers. The minor league Brewers. And then she great fan until the Braves came to Milwaukee, became a Braves fan. And I can't tell you, of course, I was in school and this and that, but every time I'm home, she and I went to ball games together. And, um, yeah. and of course, when we got the Brewers, she never missed a game, David, from 1970. I'm going to say till 87 or 88 when, unfortunately, the Alzheimer's really came in and then she couldn't. But in the 82, we're in the World Series against the Cardinals. And, of course, my mother's in St. Louis. And um, she's walking to the ballpark from the hotel. And, unfortunately, she broke her hip. And so she winds up in Jewish Hospital in St. Louis. We win the first game 10 to nothing. I call her in about the seventh inning. She picks up the phone and said, buddy, we're doing okay. Yeah, so fine. And I went over there and the granddaughters were there. And, and then she flew back with the team. But even during the world, she was so apologetic. And, oh, how could this have happened to me? But she lived and died every out of the World Series right to the end. Did she give you advice? Yeah, she did. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you a funny story now that I think of it. I'd be on the road, and sometimes I couldn't get a score. And if my wife wasn't home, I'd call her. By the way she answered the phone, I knew whether we had won or lost. Hello. Uh-oh. <laughs> Hello. How'd we, you know, yeah, this and that. And yeah, she would, she would give me some advice about, what about this guy who maybe struck out twice with two men on base or something? But she lived and died with it. You talked about the fact that you became a Braves fan, you all became Braves fan when they moved from uh, uh, from the from from Boston to Milwaukee. They were there for twelve or thirteen years. What does it mean to a city to have a big league sports franchise, and particularly a big league baseball franchise? Well, I do. I, I spend a lot of t- a lot a lot in this regard. I, I have often said, David, the sociological effect is far more important than the, the economics are good in spite of what you've heard and right. best in stadium. But, but when you, when you look back on, and I, this is a little bit controversial, but on Walter O'Malley leaving Brooklyn. Yeah. That was more than a little controversial in Brooklyn. Yeah. Well, I understand that. I, I, and, and that's my whole <laughs> point to you. It, it, it broke Brooklyn's heart. And, and that was the lesson to be learned. That's the one franchise shift, if I had been commissioner, that frankly I would have stopped. But anyway, um, it means a great deal. I, I know what it meant here. I know what it's meant in other places. It, it, it gives the community a feel. You know, two questions I used to ask when they were debating about a ballpark. Will it make the community a better place to live? And then, of course, what are the economic considerations? And there's no question what it, what it does for a community. It, it 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 gives it identity. It gives it, I mean, you, you look back on the Brooklyn Dodgers or the Chicago Cubs or the Los Angeles Dodgers now or or even the Brewers or the St. Louis Cardinals. David, you, I, it's hard to conceive of, of those communities without a team. Well, it's even more. That's even more so with, uh, you know, smaller markets like, uh, you know, the Pirates or the Reds or or the, Brewer. uh, or, or the, or the Brewers. The reason I ask the question is when, Mil- when the Milwaukee Braves left Milwaukee, 
What did it do to the city, to the psyche of the city? Oh, it broke its heart. I remember a story that I tell, I tell around here, the last game of the year, 1965, in the last game before the, the, the Braves had been forced to stay. I'm sitting in, my, in the stands with a couple of my partners, and we had formed the Brewers already, and a woman walks up, handicapped woman from a prominent family here, and she said to me, are you Bud Seelig? I said, yes, I'm just a kid. 30 years old at that time, 31 years old. And she said, and tears are streaming down her face. And she said, do you understand what this means to all of us? Do you have any idea? And she broke down. And then she pointed her finger at me, and it took us five and a half years to get a team. Went through a lot of heartache, but finally got it. And she said, don't you fail. You're all we got. And though hmm. through a lot of disappointments and through a lot of years of struggle, I never forgot that. And so when we finally got a team on the night of March 31st, 1970, from Seattle, I, I took a long walk, cold as it was. You know how March nights are around here. And I do. I do indeed. I was so happy, and I kept thinking about all the people. That, uh, and, you know, the one thing in the first couple of years of the Brewers that I probably didn't quite understand, even though I've lived here all my life, born and raised, obviously, was how angry people were and hurt. But, of course, once Yount and Molitor and Cooper and we got good, all that went away. Yeah, you built a, you built a great team there. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, your, your buddy, Herb Cole, my buddy as well, did the same thing for Milwaukee um, when the Bucks were, you know, they didn't have, when, when that team, that team was leaving Milwaukee and he saved the team from Milwaukee and then years later sold the team on the assurance that the team would remain in Milwaukee, probably cost himself quite a bit of money to do well, it. I think he did, of course, and that's absolutely right. I, I often have people say to me, what did you guys talk about when you were room? We were roommates the last two years in college. Well, <laughs> yes. You know, we talked about everybody thought, who could have ever believed we both wind up running the two teams here in Mononi and two teams in Milwaukee. It was remarkable. But but he did you're you're absolutely right. Yeah, but they are civic pillars. You both succeeded you to a greater extent in getting the public public investment in stadiums and arenas. Mm-hmm. Uh you 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 built what was then Miller Park. What are you guys calling it now, Hugh? It's American family. What's your ball? Family insurance, uh-huh. yeah. The birds, yes. Yeah, that and that was quite a battle. Uh, to you got a sales tax passed to build this domed stadium in Milwaukee. Right, I've described it as the most disappointing, and I'll tell you why. And I understand. Look, raise taxes one tenth of one cent. By the way, one tenth of one cent. But the politicians engaged in demagoguery that was frightening. Now, you 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 would understand that better than me because you've been involved in that. But it was. Look, here, here I was with the ownership group and with me, obviously, trying to keep a team here. This wasn't Brooklyn, David. This was desperately. Mm-hmm. County Stadium was falling apart. We didn't have a choice. But I, and I also knew with all new stadiums after Camden Yards that, you know, we were going to have to, we were going to have to have a new stadium. And what we put up with was just, Look, I, and, and by the way, the public was with us. <laughs> it was really interesting. There was just a lot of political shenanigans. I called it cheap demagoguery, but you can call it anything you want. But finally, after four years, three or four years, we did get it done, and it was quite a battle. And guess what, David? All the critics are gone. The Brewers average, on a, in a decent year, three million people a year. I mean, it's a great thing for Milwaukee. And I did a study because it not only sociologically makes your city a better place, but I had the University of Wisconsin Economics Department and the UWM, University of Wisconsin Milwaukee Economics Department, together do a study on what the brewers bring in. It was over 300, and this was five years ago, $330 million. Well, nobody ever talks about that during the debate. So is Milwaukee... Or, or, no, but, or, or else people don't believe it, you know. Well... But they can doubt the UW economics. It, it's easy. To, it's it's easy to no no. I understand. Look, I'm not arguing with you because I've been on the side. But you you 
you know, I was involved in two uh, stadium initiatives in uh, Detroit and one in Cleveland. I've made these arguments, uh, but uh, but there, you know, people there. It's very easy to push back and say, well, you know, just give the money right to the schools, give the money right to. Oh well, uh, that's exactly right. But and this was one tenth of one cent. Think about that. Yeah, still in all, uh, there was a state senator who cast a deciding vote who got recalled. That's what caused the political upheaval. That was George yeah. Pete. That was George Pete, and he was recalled and received, and that's what caused David the heartache. You know, one of these things, uh, these uh, about uh, we talked about how, what these teams mean, particularly to uh, smaller markets. You fought a long battle, and I can't remember what you must have whether you this was concluded when you became commissioner or before you became commissioner uh, to get revenue sharing uh, for smaller market teams. Uh, that that don't have the TV markets of uh, uh, and the corporate base of some of these larger uh, cities. I read somewhere that George Steinbrenner, the owner of the Yankees, called you a socialist for for supporting revenue. George and I were actually cool. We never agreed on anything, but for some reason, look. Let me tell you, you could see what was happening in the eighties and early nineties. It all started with George's deal with MSG, where he got. 40 or $50 million, the Brewers were getting like 20 grand, the Mets weren't even getting this kind of money. And you knew disparity was a new word. And so let me tell you what happened. We started on revenue sharing. First, we lost the World Series because of the people wanted a cap, and I understood that. But in 1996, we passed our first revenue. When I took over in 92, David, not a nickel of revenue shine. Not a nickel. Now, the one thing that a commissioner has to do is provide hope and faith in as many places as is possible. You can't have a sport. And I used to tell George that. George, you aren't any smarter than I am. You bought a team in New York. He was from Cleveland. And I don't mean Cleveland despairing. But I mean, you know, he had he had uh, six or eight million households, and I had six hundred thousand. Yeah, and and I'd say to him, you can't have team. I I had a blue ribbon committee that I brought, and I used a lot. But in nineteen ninety eight, it was Paul Volcker, George Senator Mitchell, George Will, and Rick Levin, who was the president of Yale in those days in the economy. And after a yes. couple of meetings, they were a very independent group, as they should, as I promised. Paul Volcker came to me and said, you know, Commissioner, you've got 25 teams that can't win. I said, well, that's why you're here. I, mean, I like you guys, but we have a problem. And that's what this was all about. Uh, Pete Rozelle, who I had a lot of respect for, always used to see on any given Sunday. Commissioner of football, yeah. Commissioner of football. Long-time commissioner of football. That's right. But we, we needed to provide hope and faith. Well, fortunately, and I, I did this every day on my commissionership, especially in the early days, we finally, by 2011, got up to $500 million of revenue sharing. I'm proud of that. But if, look, if you want to have a sport where you have competition and you have the Chicago's, the L.A.'s, the New York's, Boston, and then you have Cincinnati, Pittsburgh, St. Louis, Milwaukee, the Twin Cities, on and on, most of your franchises, you can't provide hope and faith unless you have an economic system, David, that works. Yeah. No, as someone once told me, there in sports, you either have to be selling wins or you have to be selling hope. And if you can't sell either, you're in, you're trouble. in trouble as a, as, as, a sports, as a sports franchise. One of the first things that you dealt with um, as commissioner was a, a a really, really tough battle uh, with the players union uh, and a strike in in uh, 94 that cost the, the, the World Series. Um, and uh, I, I was interested in this. This finally, uh, the, the players sued uh, and the court decided uh, in their favor. And you remember who the judge was in that case? Sonia Sotomayor. I do. <laughs> yes. Yeah. You know, she's a she's a rabid baseball fan. I know she is. Oh, gosh, I know. Look, let me let me just say this. Yeah, I had taken over in 92. We had already had eight work stoppages in my career. that started in 1970. 
We had a poisonous relationship with the Players Association. And um, then, then we had a bunch of new owners, Drayton McLean in Houston, David Glass in Kansas City, and a bunch of new owners who wanted a cap. And Stan Kasten, who was president of Atlanta Braves and Hawks. A cap on overall salary spending. Yeah, who would say to me, the other sports have that. We're not asking for half as much as they have. Football had a cap. Basketball has a cap. Hockey even has a cap now. Well, this union is, was not going to give us a cap. And unfortunately, I had held the owners together, and I think I really do believe Don Fair, who was head of the union, miscalculated. But we lost the World Series, which was a heartbreaking, terrible moment. I just can't tell you what a terrible moment that was. And you're right, later on in 95, to end the thing, Judge uh, Sonia Sotomayor ruled against us. And I, I, I mean, this was a this was a ninth work stoppage. It was really difficult. But I'm proud to say in 02 and 6 and 11, and then again in 15, we had the longest labor peace in history. So I think we learned our lesson. I don't know what's going to happen next. I'm concerned. This is a, we have a tense, tough relationship. When's the contract up again? At December 1st of this year. Yeah. And do you think that we could be headed for another labor dispute that could cause games? Time will tell. It's been a, a tense relationship mm-hmm. between the parties right now. The White House tried to intervene to end the standoff between you guys. You had a, a pretty spirited exchange with the then Vice President Al Gore at that time. Is that a true story? Is that a true story? Yeah. Oh, it's very true. Nobody denied it. They all read it, by the way, in my book. Look, here's what happened. On the 14th of October of that year, 94, we Don Fair, head of the union, I get called to the White House. Clinton had said to me, um, well, I'd heard beforehand that he wanted to go to mediation and Bill Ussery, who was the most famous labor mediator since well, he started with um, with um, Harry Truman, so he served every president. And would we agree to mediation? The owners didn't want to do it, but I told them I thought we should. David Glass, who owned the Kansas City Royals, and Hillary was on his board, so uh, Walmart. So he he sort of said to me, "Let's do it, and please." And so I went there, and the president gave me his word that he would accept whatever us we came up with. And um, so uh, for the next four months, we battled tough. Uh, and, and, and I liked us, but had a lot of disagreements with him. He calls me in early February and says, you got to come to Washington. And I did. And our whole labor committee was there. Uh, my daughter, Wendy, Jerry Reinsdorf, John Harrington of the Red Sox, the whole group. And I meet with Usri, and he gives me the plan. And, you know, I have to admit, I didn't like it, but it could have been worse. And it was, it was fair. So he said he'd be right back to me. The next thing I know, we get a call to come to the White House. Uh-oh. I knew that. And <laughs> David, yes, I called everybody. I called Herb. I called Joe Lieberman. I called Chris Dodd. I called everybody. Nobody knew what was going on. We get to the White House, and it's oh, and Al Gore, Bill Clinton takes over, but then he sort of disappeared. We can't accept the union who called Ussery a senile SOB, if you'll pardon my language. Um, and imagine if we had done that. But to make a long story short, um, the meeting kind of breaks up for a while. And the next thing, Leon Panetta comes to me and says, President, we'd like to see you. Now, Leon Panetta was very close to George Mitchell, as I was. and He so, was chief of staff at the time uh, for, for the president. I could tell he was embarrassed. but So Clinton said this and that, and I said, finally said to him, kept thinking about my mother and dad, if I knew I was sitting talking to the president of the United States, Mr. President, you gave me your word that whatever us we came up with, well, we can't accept it. The union won't accept it. Now we get in a meeting. President's there, Stephanopoulos is there, Panetta's there, um, Reich, the labor secretary is there, who I didn't agree with on much of anything. But anyway, 
And Al Gore starts in and he says, I'm sick and tired of this and I'm sick and tired of the little guys getting in the way here. The little guys happen to be the small markets. Well, I sat there and took it as long as I can and finally I exploded. And I said, one more time, there's a thousand media people out, the, out there and if you want to continue, I'm going out to them, you broke your word. And I also think you ought to go to Cincinnati and Pittsburgh and Detroit and Milwaukee and tell them the little guys don't deserve a baseball team. But that, that broke up the meeting. So yes, it was a real confrontation. You left out the, the F-bomb part. I did drop some F-bombs, yes. <laughs> We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now, back to the show. You know, you dealt with a lot of tough issues when you were there but as commissioner, but probably one that is most memorable is the whole steroid issue. Yeah. Uh, you were there when that, that really... Uh, that really evolved yeah. and hit the fan. And I remember it well because I was there in, uh, in, in Chicago in 98 when Sammy Sosa was having this home run derby with McGuire, uh, both of them sailing past uh, Ruth's uh, 61 homers in a season. But I, I got to ask you, you know, between 95 and 2007, 23 guys hit more than 50 homers, only three between 61 and 95. Didn't You, you must have known something was up, right? Let me tell you my recollection of it. No, that's a very fair question. In 98, there was a writer in Pittsburgh, Steve Wilstein, the AP, who, who found a bottle of Andro in Mark McGuire's locker. That started. I had talked to Andy McPhail and John Churros. McPhail was in Chicago, remember, and, and Charles in Atlanta, and a lot of GMs who I liked a lot. And they nobody really knew. Now, when I went to the pharmacy the next day, I'll never forget it, the druggist, who I still takes care of us, said, it's over there, can buy it, and so on and so forth. The union fought us. The union had always fought us. Remember this, David. In the 80s, we had a serious cocaine problem. If you remember the Pittsburgh drug trials, 29 guys got convicted, four went to jail, and they still wouldn't agree. And the union fought us, and they've done it publicly. If Don were here today, Fair or Gene Orza, they couldn't deny it, and I don't think would. So the best we could get in 98 was, we'll go to Harvard. Now, the thing that frustrates me, because some people said, well, you know, Bud and that baseball were slow to react. David, this is a subject of collective bargaining. I banned steroids in the minors in 2000 for the 01 season. There I could do that unilaterally, but I couldn't do it otherwise. And so uh, they fought us. I mean, it was one of the great fights. There was no question. It went on and on. I could go back and forth. It was wrong. I used to say to Don Fear, they're illegal. Not only is it immoral, what it's doing to the game, but and Rob Manfred was very much involved. And I, look, today, I guess the only thing I can tell you, starting in 02, where we had testing, and today it's the toughest, toughest testing program in American sports and the toughest testing program in America. And WADA, the World Anti-Doping Association, and USADA, United States Anti, who used to be very critical of us, are very complimentary. So it had a happy ending, but a lot of pain, a lot of heartache, and, you know, there's a lot of people. Actually, I, you know, I like Sammy Sosa. I really did. I, I, I had a great relationship with him. And, but then we had a hearing in, in Washington where Rafael Palmero and Sammy all of a sudden couldn't speak English, and it was, it was just not a good story. Hey, I, I love I loved Sammy. I was I was also there the day when uh, when his bat <laughs> his bat cracked and cork flew out of it. So, yeah, I know. I I had McPhail called me that night. I had to come down to Chicago the next morning, and oh, it was that was painful. You talk about the difficulties that you faced in dealing with that issue, but baseball also reaped some benefits from it. I remember the uh, Sosa McGuire contest, and it was. It was crackling, you know, 
it, it just grabbed the nation's attention. When the Cubs played the Cardinals, it was a national event because of these two players and so on. And you guys made a lot of money off of all of that. I'll tell you, David, the myth about that. Our attendance went down after the 98 season for 99. So people said that, but I I really, look, I've never had an owner meeting where it wasn't 100% where owners saying, you got to solve that problem. Nobody said, hey, we're making money within us. Never once, David. So I'm telling you from 98 on, I was bound and determined because I really thought it threatened the integrity of the game. One painful irony of this is you were the commissioner when uh, Barry Bonds passed uh, your friend, Henry Aaron, in terms of uh, career home runs. And you must have, did you have suspicions then? Oh, no, by that, I didn't have suspicions. I knew. There's no question. Yeah, but you couldn't do anything about it, huh? Exactly right. That's exactly right. Look, I went on the, because I had to go, and Henry called me every day when Bonds was, Great news record. And Henry was great about it. You know, he wasn't great about Bonds. I mean, I, I have to be very candid with it, but he was great about, he worried about me and, and I shouldn't take it seriously. And, and people thought, including Barry, that the reason I felt the way I did is because of my relationship with Henry. That wasn't true. Oh, I, there was no question uh, about my relationship with Henry. But look, let's get back to social institution again. You know, my my students get tired of me talking about it, but <laughs> let me tell you what happened at a hearing in Washington. I got there early, not, not realizing this was going to be a terrible day. I got there early, and there were two parents, Don Hooten and Bob Garibaldi, talking about their sons, high school baseball players who took steroids and committed suicide, took high-powered steroids. Well, I remember that day thinking, oh, my God. And then this day went on. It was bad. I called Hooten the next day. He didn't believe it was me. and I had to, He had to call me back. And he has since done work for baseball on steroids, goes to every city. We conduct seminars for inner city kids and so on and so forth. But so I, I really, in the Bonds case, he was involved with Balco, convicted of perjury. Make a long story short. Look, I took it personally because we are a social institution. And I kept thinking to myself, and I often thought about Hooten and Garibaldi, my God, there are kids watching our players who think this is okay. Yeah, that did disturb me, David. No question. Do these guys belong in the Hall of Fame? Well, I've never commented on it. I, I think you can tell by my This would be the perfect time. Yeah, you, you know, you can tell by my conversation, though. I think what's going on so far is okay meaning that they shouldn't be it's up to the writers to determine it but i'm i'm not unhappy and what and 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 what about pete rose and his whole situation you had to deal with that as well look look the first time i was in a major league clubhouse would have been may of 1958 i was just a kid and the first thing i saw was a huge sign by ford c frick then commissioner which said which said that if if um, you gambled, you were suspended for life. So, David, we were all raised in this sport, okay? We were all raised in this sport that understand that gambling is the worst of all sins. And because if you and I go to a game in Wrigley tomorrow, and if there's a scintilla of doubt, we've lost, you, the sport is done. And so, I, what Bart Giamatti, whom I loved, did, the commissioner in those days before he passed away, was right. I give the, everybody else since then, Dave uh, Vincent, Rob Manfred, everybody else has kept uh, the suspension on. And, and, I, and I believe that that's right because um, I met with Pete Rose, Johnny Bench, Joe Morgan, and Mike Schmidt brought him to my office in Milwaukee. And uh, they all had different views, but that's another story. And I met with Pete, and he had called a lot of my players, and he said, gee, I know you're close to a lot of players. I am, Pete. And I asked him point blank. I said, hey, did you gamble? I've seen all the stuff from Dowd and everything else. And David, believe me, there was no question. But he swore to me that he hadn't. Three years later, when the day that Molitor and Eckersley were getting in the Hall of Fame, he announced that he had gambled on baseball. So 
I'll rest my case. Still, I, I, I don't dispute that. You want you, you need to know that the guys on the field have no other motivation than to win the game for the team that whose uniform they're wearing. He, he you know, it's the the sad thing about that was the guy was indisputably a great player. Oh, look, he was a great he was a great great player in every way, no question about it. But you know, Bart it said to him way back when Bart Giamatti, yeah. Bart Giamatti, if you can, you're one read, of your predecessors. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Whom I was extremely close to. If you can reconfigure your life, then you can apply for reinstatement. He lives in Las Vegas, David. He's never reconfigured his life. Yeah. Talk about the game itself. You know, I love baseball. You know that. I, do. Uh, you know, and, and I always have this discussion with my wife, Susan, who uh, is a basketball fan. Uh, and But she said, you know, baseball is just too slow too slow. And I say, well, you know, you go to a base basketball game, you go to a hockey game, you go to a football game. When you go to a baseball game, you say, I'm going to the ballpark. It's a different experience yes, because it is. it's not only the game, the game, but it's the whole experience. And I love it. And I don't, she, she thinks a, uh, a, a one nothing game is boring. And I think it's beautiful. I do too. But you know what? You and I have a few years uh, at this and uh, there are a lot, there is, there is a concern about the pace of the game, uh, and uh, and I'm just wondering um, where you think the sport is at and what needs to be done. Well, I, there's no question there are some problems. There always are problems, you know. And 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 look, but I I want to say this to you. I, I retell a story, and Rob and a lot of people have heard this story. 1958, there was a sports editor here by the name of Oliver E. Keith. Yeah, you heard it there, but he went to Dallas at the AP Sports Editors, and he said baseball is moribund, dying. The new gener- young generation wants football and likes pro football and likes this, that, that. And, and pro football's had a meteoric rise. But here we are, 63 years later, and the sport, more popular than ever, it has problems. And they're, they're working on those problems. And I think there are some things going on that will, will be good. Look, do I think it's still the greatest game? I do. But are there problems? Yes. But are they trying to solve their problems? I think Rob Manfred has been very good about this. And 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 Theo Epstein is there now, by the way, which is really his Yes, soul. I know. Our former president of the Cubs, great man. Exactly right. So I, look, can they do things? Look, I happen to, Henry Aaron used to grumble to me. I, I just said, 23 years, he said he never got out of the batter's and he said, if I had, Drysdale or Gibson would have killed you on the next pitch. So <laughs> now, now guys get out of the batter's box, adjust everything back in M. Swan. And I'm telling you, between a pitch, pitch clock and, and that and keeping a guy in the batter's box, I think you can really, really make some changes. But they're working on it. And um, I, I, I'm, I'm not naive. David, I think the future of the game is very, very good. But there is work to be done. Look, let me give you a, a pragmatic example. Steve Cohn just paid $2.5 billion for the Mets. Smart guy. You think he would have paid $2.5 billion if he thought the, uh, the sport was dying? I don't think so. One of the things that's happened to the game, and every aspect of life, is uh, technology has uh, has changed it. We've got these analytics now, every team. I mean, Theo obviously was a big proponent of that, had a huge analytics unit at the Cubs. Oh, no uh, question. A- analyzing, you know, the spin rate on the ball uh, and every conceivable, you know, the, 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 the rate of the ball off the bat, the, you know, where to put defenses on for every particular batting and pitching matchup and stuff. Do you think that that has um, improved the game? Well, I know there's a lot of controversy about it, but I, I, I like analytics. I, the, the only thing that I would say to you about analytics, yeah, I do. I think it's improving, but the human element shouldn't be eliminated. For instance, even in scouting today, they use analytics. The most important thing you do, I want to, I've always sent scouts to people. I want to know about their heart, their mind, want to know who they are. The analytics can't tell me that. So I think there's got to be a combination. I, I'm not against it. 
but I, 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 there were other things I would do along with it. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I think uh, when you lose the human element, it takes something away from the game. I hope we don't drift too far in that direction. Listen, before we go, one of the things that's happened to the game is there are far fewer uh, African-American players uh, than there were, uh, you know, when you started as an owner. Um, and uh, baseball itself is not, um, it's, it's, it is, it has lost luster uh, among, uh, among young people. Yeah, uh, yeah. Young, what what do you do to change that? You know, just getting back to our initial discussion, you were there and you saw the first African American player play in the major leagues. Well, I worked on it. I worked on it for a long time. I had Frank Robinson, who was a great player himself, as you well remember, who worked yes. for, mm -hmm. for twenty years, and he and Henry and I would spend a lot of time together, and that was always the subject of debate. And I guess my, my answer to you on that score is it's an issue that I've worked on for 50 years and I still don't know the answer. I think we're doing better now. We have some very good young players. The minor leagues are now really, really have a lot of good uh, African-American players. So I hope that we're doing better on that score. I believe that we are. Yes, it bothers me a lot. I don't mind telling you. But Selig, it's good to be with you. You are a walking wealth of of history when it comes to the, na uh, the national pastime. And it's always a pleasure to chat with you. Dave, it's been a pleasure and um, I look forward to doing this again in the near future. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Emily Stanitz. The show is also produced by Miriam Annenberg, Jeff Fox, Hannah McDonald, and Allison Siegel. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Courtney Coop, Ashley Lusk, and Megan Marcus. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.